when the oil industry tries to find new oil, they've got to do surveys, they've got to dig on the ground, they got to hope they hit an oil patch. We go out and look for a sign that says landfill and look for a big hump in the ground. Where can we get the lowest hanging fruit with yeah. the least amount of work, but extract the most amount of value? This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dallin-Hauer. Today we're talking about a near-inexhaustible supply of fuel in garbage. My guest says they want to set up shop at both working and shuttered landfills across the globe and start making energy. The technology has been with us for a while. We've discussed gasification on this program before. By superheating carbon-based waste, plastic, wood, food, you can break it down into carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which we call syngas. Syngas can then be burned in a turbine to make electricity or run over a catalyst and converted into fuels ranging from diesel to jet fuel. I remember the first time I ever visited a gasification plant. It was an experimental facility outside of Tampa that was gasifying petroleum coke, the waste product from refining, to run a combustion turbine. Much like coal, burning syngas produced from these solids is cleaner than burning them outright. Also, gasification is a much easier way to capture carbon dioxide, if one were so inclined. My guest also believes their gasification family, which they call plasma gasification, is much more energy efficient when you measure the energy it takes to gas the fuel versus the energy produced from burning the gas created. They are also planning to make these gasifiers modular and portable, not because they plan to move them around a lot. To the contrary, they expect each gasifier to stay put at a landfill over 20 years. But they've seen that smaller, more modular designs have a way of being successful when efforts to build a larger single facility on location have had problems. It's their hope that this gasified garbage can lead to a more sustainable, energy future. My guest today is Bill Smith, head of technology development for Reformed Energy, a gasification company. Bill and I caught up while he was passing through Houston. They're looking at both a landfill and a factory for the gas fires in the area. In 2020, Reformed's predecessor company acquired the plasma gasification technology they plan to use on landfills. The initial plan right now is to create syngas to run a turbine that will sustain operations off the grid and produce sustainable aviation fuel, excess power generation will then be used to mine Bitcoin. We also discussed the carbon math involved in using garbage to produce fuel rather than mining or drilling for new hydrocarbons. To hear Bill explain it, this process is a net carbon reduction. One thing's for sure, it's certainly easier to find garbage than explore the depths for new oil. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bill Smith. We're here with Bill Smith, head of technology development for Reformed Energy. And Bill, gasification technology has been with us for quite some time. I've seen some facilities myself. centuries. Yeah. So what is a plasma gasifier and how is it different from other gasification technologies? Okay, I won't bore you totally to tears, but a gasifier is like a big toaster. We put waste or whatever in it and we heat it up 
in the absence of oxygen, which causes molecules to disassociate or tear apart. Some gas fires use natural gas as an energy source because you have to have thermal energy. We choose to use plasma gasification, so plasma being the fourth state of energy. A plasma physicist named Christian Juvon developed this technology and the plasma guns, and the technology he developed is exponentially less energy demanding than Westinghouse torch or whatever. He uses a pulsed energy, and for example, the gas fire they built in El Cajon out in California took 70 kilowatts to output 500 kilowatts. So it took 70 kilowatts of energy to tear apart the molecules to produce enough gas to run a 500 kW generator. We use about 140 kilowatts to tear apart 50 tons of molecules a day into enough syngas to produce three and a half megawatts of power. So it's an exponential factor increase over most traditional gasification processes. I mean, you can put waste in a gasifier, heat it up, start on fire if you want, and then it'll self-sustain as long you're feeding it. So the gas fire we have will do 50 tons of waste a day. We use the plasma torches to maintain the thermal energy of the gas fire. And another issue that a lot of other gasification processes have is they don't count for the chemical part. So Mm -hmm. it's really a thermal chemical reaction. So in that we're taking apart molecules, you're freeing up things like fluorines, and we have to bind those to something so they become inert again. And then we take those carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen atoms and recombine them into carbon monoxide carbon dioxide and hydrogen, which is syngas. The difference between this type of a gasifier and others is the smaller amount of energy we need to do the same process. There's a company that takes their temperature up to 4,000 F. Well, they're melting metals, they're melting glasses, and we don't need to do that. We stop when we've extracted energy out of the molecular structure, but there's no energy in glass. There's no energy in metals. So again, our gasification process stops when we've extracted the energy, and then the ash that comes out goes off to a landfill or goes to a concrete company. Yeah, I'm a little bit unsure about how this works, but my understanding is a gas fire, it's not like a boiler. It's just basically a vessel that creates gas, right? You ever watch a fire in a fire pit and you see that smoke coming off? That's syngas. The problem is you're not capturing it, it's going out the chimney. And the combustion part you're seeing in firewood is burning the hydrogen. So everything we touch today has hydrogen in it. Combining hydrogen in different ways, you can get gasoline, diesel fuel, whatever, So all our project and desire is to tear the molecules apart and then recombine them differently. Like you said, syngas is like a Play-Doh. Yeah. You can run it in a generator, just like natural gas, and produce electricity, or you can run it through catalysts and turn it into fuel. So disassociating molecules back into atoms and then recombining atoms is the science of this type of plasma gasification. Right, but the fuel itself is not combusting. It's not creating its own self-sustaining heat, right? Right. Every gasification process needs some form of external energy to keep everything at a certain temperature zone. Yeah. We choose 1100 degrees because at that temperature zone, we can disassociate plastics, paper, styrofoam, cardboard, coal, tires, whatever. If you go into the higher zones, you're melting metals, which is a waste of energy. So <laughs> we stay in that zone. Yep. And it's a more efficient system. In fact, adaptive art kind of coined this term cool plasma. If we can keep it in this pyrolysis zone, absent of oxygen, you get disassociation. You just get a gas. Yep. Carbon in itself is 
carbon black. Oxygen is a gas, right? Hydrogen is a gas. So if we were combusting, those gases would recombine and we get flames out of our gas fire. We don't, we get a gas. Yeah, and it's heated electrically? Well, we use electricity to produce plasma. All right. So the gas fire we're building at 50 tons a day takes 170 kilowatts. It will strip the molecules apart to a point that we're now producing enough gas to power three and a half megawatt turbines. Okay, and then is the turbine then powering the gas right. fire? so okay. we're off the grid. Right on, okay, okay. We'll start up with a small generator to get the gas fire running and up the temperature, and from that point on, once the turbine fires, we just bleed off some of the power. All of the syngas goes into the generator to produce power in this first case. In our case, we produce the syngas, we don't tank it, it actually, 100% of it goes into an engine. So we match an engine to the amount of syngas we produce. In this pilot site, one gasifier will make enough syngas for a three and a half megawatt turbine. Our next site will take six gasifiers and they will run a GE turbine putting out 20 megawatts of power. Okay. So we match the power source engine need to a number of gas fires. And you know, it takes 100% of the gas whatever we produce. And then all we have left is ash. Got it. You're using landfills as a waste stream. Essentially anything carbon, we've talked about this, can be used for gasification. On these landfills, is it fresh garbage or is it, Doesn't are matter. you digging up? Doesn't what do you matter. think is gonna happen? So in the United States, there are 10,000 landfills that are closed. They've been closed, capped, covered in dirt. Right. We're looking at a landfill here in Houston. It was just capped last year with 8.7 million tons of garbage in place. At the same time, we can go to a local landfill that's still operating today, get off to the side, garbage truck comes in, weighs the garbage, truck comes over to us, we take it out of the garbage truck, we shred it, run it right in the gas fire. At a closed landfill, yeah, we have to dig it up. We're out of everybody's way, which is a great point. And then we just dig up the garbage, run it through shredders, same process, run it through gas fires. The old landfills, in fact, the pilot site we're looking at here in Houston is a closed landfill. It was closed in the 1990s. And the city of Houston is going to dig up all these landfills and turn it into storm detention ponds. We'll be in Idaho on Friday looking at a landfill that's a brand new landfill. It has tires on site and has fresh garbage. So we'll either go and process fresh garbage out of that landfill or we'll take up dug up waste here. As we started talking earlier, we can take tires. We can take garbage garbage, which is, you know, if you look in your garbage bag, there's some diapers, there's plastic bottles, there's glass jars, whatever, we run it all through a shredder. The shredder doesn't care what we shred. And then our gas fire is going to extract the energy in that plastic bottle and those diapers and the cardboard boxes you throw away and stuff like that. It doesn't matter if it's old garbage or new garbage. It's, yeah. it's just garbage. And then we still do trees. We can do waste coal to everything but nuclear waste. Yeah. And so why do we land on garbage, I guess? Well, there are 10,000 landfills in the United yeah. States. We're as a growing nation, as a growing world, we're producing more and more garbage every day. Yep. You get people, you get garbage. And the problem with the garbage industry is it's getting harder and harder to find a place to put the garbage. If you look at the landfill in Nevada, they're taking like a million some tons of garbage a day. Well, they're putting landfills out in the middle of nowhere and they're walking away from landfills that have been capped and are in the process of being capped. I believe it was Tennessee has an issue that in the next few years, all of their landfills will be full and they don't know where to take the garbage. Yeah. To us, we're getting rid of that garbage problem, which is nobody wants it, right? Mm -hmm. It's buried under the ground. It's sitting there rotting, producing methane. So it's kind of like when the oil industry tries to find new oil, they've got to do surveys. They've got to dig underground. They've got to hope they hit an oil patch. We go out and look for a sign that says landfill and look for a big hump in the ground. That's right. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of easy to find. Yeah. So it's a free energy source that nobody's tapping into. 
Do you get paid for helping to reduce the landfill size? Are you getting some other financial incentive there? Well, to... the government has incentives. Okay. There are carbon credits. There are special tax incentives. If we operated a open landfill, like say a waste management or Republic or GFL landfill, we could collect a tipping fee, but that's cutting into their revenue. If we're doing an old landfill, we don't have to make money from the garbage or the waste stream. Our model is self-sustaining to the degree that between the tax incentives and tax credits, which icing on the cake, just the energy production and fuel production makes all of our sites profitable. Okay. Because you're getting free fuel source, right? Free fuel source. Free fuel source. Right. And you mentioned the carbon thing. Now, it's my understanding, okay, like when garbage breaks down, it's producing methane, right? Well, not plastic, not cardboard and things like that. It's mostly the food waste we throw away. Right. But it's venting. But yeah, methane. So, CH4. But when you gasify, you're going to create the syngas, but then you're going to run that through a combustor. You're going to make CO2, right? Right. But every engine emits CO2. Your car does, your truck does, the generator does, but it's not new CO2. So if I go dig up a barrel of crude oil out of the ground, that CO2 has been sequestered for eons underground. I'm now bringing it to the surface, I'm refining it, and I'm releasing new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that was never in the atmosphere except when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah, yeah. It's the same argument they used to make when we would talk about enhanced oil recovery, using right. CO2, you're injecting right. CO2 you to make CO2. oil. And they were like, well, you're burning oil. Well, the alternative would have been you would have produced oil and not sequestered CO2 right. when you did it. So but nobody wants to ride horses anymore. That's right. That's right. That's right. But you were saying something about carbon credits. So how does so that work? In the example you used, you're pumping CO2 in the ground uh-huh. to technically re-sequester it. But people don't understand if you take CO2 and add hydrogen to it, it's fuel. So why don't they do that? But that's another axe to grind. But in a nutshell, when you're emitting or saving carbon from the atmosphere, if I burn a gallon of gasoline and I burn a gallon of syngas, the syngas is not new CO2. It was already accounted for when they turned that oil into plastic, right? Okay. So I'm not releasing new, I'm not adding to the CO2 in the world, I'm actually re-releasing. But you can't get away from releasing CO2 in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't exist. That science doesn't exist. Even if I combine hydrogen and make another fuel, which you can make liquid fuels out of it, I'm still going to re-release that CO2 when it's combusted. Yeah, but are you getting carbon credit? You said, yeah. are you get- we get a credit because we're not releasing new CO2. I'm replacing that CO2 that came out of the petroleum. Now this is if it was still sequestered. And the whole energy cycles in the future would be is if we burnt all the garbage in all the world and turned it into syngas, we would add nothing to the CO2 level that's in the atmosphere today. But if we burn the amount of energy out of petroleum or coal, we're now releasing no CO2 in the atmosphere. So we're constantly adding to it. Okay. Well, I think some people might ask, well, it wasn't fuel, it was plastic. Plastic. You know, the CO2 was sequestered into plastic. So go look at the sheet. What is plastic? Yeah. Carbon, hydrogen, right. oxygen. You know, those molecules that came out of the petroleum, out of the barrel of crude oil, have been released in the atmosphere. When they produce that bottle, that CO2 has chlorine in it as well. Chlorine is right. a deadly gas. So if we're disassociating these molecules, we take the deadly gases, we combine them with lime, and they become inert. We take the carbon, the hydrogen, and oxygen, and we just recombine it into a new form of energy, the syngas. But again, if I took a barrel of crude oil and I ran a turbine engine in it, I'm going to release CO2 in the atmosphere that hasn't been here since the days of dinosaurs, depending on the debate, and I'm producing electricity, right? Even if I'm burning natural gas, I'm releasing CO2 in the atmosphere. When that plastic bottle in the landfill was made, that CO2 has already been in the atmosphere. All right. So we're just taking it and re-releasing it. Again, we can also turn that into more plastics if we wanted to, but I think you talked about a company before, but if you keep converting waste back into more plastics, 
that cycle doesn't work. It's not economically viable. But if we can convert that plastic into a fuel, it has a new value as electricity. Sure. Which, again, if we're producing three and a half megawatts from garbage, that's three and a half megawatts not being produced from coal. Yeah. So that's the offset. And that's where your credit carbon market kind of comes from. You're saying, okay, you're putting out three and a half megawatts. That would have taken this much petroleum. So we'll give you credit for those gallons of fuel, the CO2 they produced, because you did not release new CO2. Yeah. That's how it works. Okay. All right. So in addition to the syn gas, you mentioned char. I've heard of this before. I had a guest on that was doing a pyrolysis technology, right? right? And they were talking about also creating biochar and they were using it for right. tires and things like yeah. that. So tell us about what's left over. You mentioned ash, I think. And so in pyrolysis, you wind up with a char. You're not completely ripping the molecules apart. You're, for lack of better terms, kind of remelting that plastic back down into an oil, refining that oil into new plastic, which then gives you a char, which is a carbon-based residual ash. When we're done, anything that's not syngas, gas state, is a solid state. That solid state is carbon, could be some fluorines, dioxins that are bound to lime. And it's just an ash that typically will go to a concrete manufacturer, not the concrete company that brings you concrete for your driveway, but the company that makes the concrete for that company. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then you could say we sequester all of the CO2 that would emit because we're offsetting what it took to produce that concrete with an ash. And they're talking about green concrete. That's really all it is, is you're using something besides the total processes to develop concrete with an offset green energy. The technology we acquired, Adaptive Art, actually built a gas fire at a concrete plant in Hannibal, Missouri. And they were doing nothing but hazardous materials. I mean, really toxic crap. And because it was clean air, they got a clean air permit for the EPA at the concrete plant. So they got brownie points there. And then all of the gas went in the concrete kiln as fuel. Mm -hmm. So they were offsetting the tires they were burning in that concrete plant and other crud with a clean gas. So it's just a cleaner fuel source. I mean, fuel's fuel. If I burn petroleum diesel fuel, I'm releasing new CO2. If I've converted that CO2 and hydrogen and carbon and syngas into a liquid fuel and I burn it in my car, I'm now releasing cleaner air than I was if I released new carbon dioxide and pollutions from petroleum. Yeah. Neither one's bad because you got to have them. I mean, right, right. now, uh, <laughs> electric trucks can't go coast to coast. I've done a few episodes with folks who've done crypto mining. And this Great. is something that you talked about in these first projects. You were telling me that the gasifiers will be used to power crypto mining right. operations, right? So there's a big hoopla going out today where they're going to landfills, taking the methane out of the landfill, landfill gas, running in a generator and mining Bitcoin with it. Well, methane to electricity has been done for decades. When you attach the Bitcoin mine side to it, everybody's like, woo, yeah. because Bitcoin mining takes a lot of power. So in our case, when we're getting rid of the garbage, we're getting rid of the elements that produce the methane, so there will never be a methane production from our waste. And when we start this product, there's more value in jet fuel. And when we started designing this first pilot site, it was mostly a jet fuel site. We have to produce power to stay off the grid, but we always had extra power. So what do we do with the power? And back last year, it's like, heck, let's just mine Bitcoin with it, you know? I mean, it makes sense because the equipment it takes to tie us back into the grid is expensive. And if we're mining Bitcoin, it's an asset that who knows, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now might be worth more than the electricity we produced. Excess energy is just, where do you want to get the most value for it? To me, putting it into creating an asset that at this time of day, whether people agree or not, may be worth more down the roads. To me, it's like buying a stock and just sitting on it. 
Yeah, the crypto miners, I've right. done some episodes about this. It's very energy intensive, but the benefit is it's not like a server farm for Netflix where it has to have 100% plus reliability. It can kind right. of be on and off and you can kind right. of call it on and off and stuff like that. Yeah, which I, is why they work with solar and wind. It's not very bright at night, so if you're tied to a solar farm, you get no power. So right. Bitcoin allows you to scale up and down and go along. When we first started this, we went to a Bitcoin mining conference in 2021 in Miami and you know, we figured out we could tie one of our gas fires to a three and a half megawatt turbine. And then at that time we had a megawatt and a half ORC. So we can make five megawatts from 50 tons of garbage a day, continuous, 24 seven. And we thought, wow, that's a, that's a lot of power. And people come by our booth and said, well, we need 30 megawatts. Yeah, oh, I've heard okay, that. Okay, We can use hundred megawatts. Oh, now we got a problem. <laughs> we need 300 megawatts. We need 700 megawatts. And we're like, crap. <laughs> you know, so we went back and we can scale up just by adding gas fires and getting bigger turbines. If somebody wants all of the power for Bitcoin mining, we can go out in the middle of nowhere, find a dump, uncover the dump, dig up all the garbage, which kills off all the methane, turn it into send gas, run GE turbines producing 20 odd megawatts each and produce 60, 80, 100 megawatts from garbage. Yeah, and I'd heard something very similar to this. My last Bitcoin guess, what they were doing was they had a model where the utility was actually going to own it and they were gonna use excess renewable energy, you know, big thing right. so they don't have to do the, the curtailments and everything. The original plan that they had pitched was they were going to use flare gas from, you know, all that right. flared gas that gets used. But right. I think the problem was is that there wasn't enough of it or wasn't right. consistent enough. And to your point, you need megawatts of this stuff, right? So if you look at a landfill gas to energy project, they're producing kilowatts, thousands of watts. We're producing megawatts. And if you're really going to Bitcoin mine, you need 10, 20, 50, 100, 700 megawatts. And I would imagine over the years, they'll probably scale up to where some of these plants might be using gigawatts. Where are they going to get it from? Mm -hmm. They can't take it off the grid because I want to run my lights at home. So you can't have that power. And finding gigawatts of power on a consistent level that doesn't disrupt the grid is a different animal. So we're kind of building our own micro systems at a place nobody wants to be with something nobody wants, garbage, then who cares what you do with it? Mm -hmm. So the Bitcoin mining, I believe, in the future could all be mined from garbage. But we still have, with all the garbage in the ground today, enough power to even power the grid. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that'd for our lifetime, be nice too. Yeah. Next lifetime. <laughs> and then you mentioned this earlier. We had talked about this before the interview. One of the things you really have an eye on is producing sustainable aviation fuel, right? jet fuel. I've been in the green space since the 1990s, and we've looked at SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. Back then with the Air Force, we were doing ethanol conversion technologies where we could run the Air Force's cars on ethanol. And I think you remember the five buck a gallon gasolines, and there were subsidies of 50 cents to a dollar a gallon for ethanol. Ethanol. We had technology to convert cars to run on ethanol. And then in 2005, with all the research we've been doing, we decided when Hurricane Katrina hit to look for a gas fire that we could ship to a hurricane site in this case, stand it up, start taking the houses, the trees, grind them up and turn them into power for the grid or put them back on a local grid or turning it into fuel. The gas to fuel technology dates back to 1920s Germany. Germany took coal, gasified it, ran it through a Fischer Tropes, two German guys, technology and turned it into gasoline, diesel fuel and jet fuel. When the war ended, all that technology came here to Texas A&M University. They offered up the oil companies who said, nah, as long as crude oil is 19 or so bucks a barrel, we're doing crude oil. Well, I think we passed 19 bucks somewhere along the line. Yep. But 
they don't want to go backwards into synthetic fuel. So if you take that same syngas that we can run a generator with and we run it across catalysts, if we run across iron ore and cobalt, it converts right into almost drop-in ready diesel fuel. So with the advancements in technologies, Fisher Trope systems have dropped down to like six shipping containers. We can take two gas fires, hook it up to a machine like this. The syngas goes across a catalyst. The catalyst determines the fuel. And on the other end, we can containerize either a synthetic crude that can be sent to a refinery or with a company we're looking at now, 80% of what comes out of the pipeline can go right into a jet. So if we're doing 100 barrels a day, 80 barrels of jet fuel will be ship ready to an airline. The airlines need 3 billion plus gallons of jet fuel today as SAF. There's less than 30 million gallons being made today. Mm-hmm. We were approached by an airline about two months ago and we met them here in Houston and we got to talking. They said, well, we need 217 million gallons. Crap. <laughs> so our problem was, okay, well, find the landfills. So one of their points was in Alaska. Another one was in LA. Another one's here in Houston and then in Hong Kong. So we found landfills at each one of those places. We would dig up the garbage, turn it into send gas, and then with a gas liquids plant, turn that into jet fuel. And they would power jets from garbage. So the world's going to that because, again, jets emit a huge amount of CO2. If they burn this fuel, SAV, they're still emitting CO2. But again, it's just like in the other theories, the CO2 has already been emitted. It's not new CO2 coming out of petroleum out of the ground. Yeah, We're going to go over the next few decades in this transition phase where we're going from petroleum to synthetic fuels, synthetic power. That's going to be the future. And then hydrogen along the way. Okay. I feel like there's something holding up sustainable aviation Money. fuel. What's that? Money. Money. It's not waiting to be approved. No, that, no, no. It's already approved. It, okay. It's already done. In fact, there was just news the other day that I think Virgin Atlantic was flying an aircraft with passengers from the UK to America on 100% SAF. Yeah. And I just talked to the biotechnology office at DOE, and I right. think they've got a big algae fuel effort. So right? there are many paths to the same place. Yeah. I can grow algae. Algaes produce a fat. That fat can be refined into jet fuel or even diesel fuel. I can take your used cooking oil from McDonald's and refine that into jet fuel. I can take corn ethanol, a biofuel, and take corn ethanol and turn it into jet fuel. I can take garbage, turn it into syngas, and turn it into jet fuel. And it will take, in my opinion, all of those things in the future to support the need. Yeah. You know, I don't believe there's a one path. You know, like solar's not the answer, wind's not the answer, but solar plus wind becomes an answer, but you're still missing that 24-7 continuity. And this can be the filler there because once we start up a gas fire, it doesn't turn off for 20 years. When I first got the email about reformed energy, you were billed as the world's first portable plasma gasifier. And so why are you the first? (laughs) So it goes back to 2005 when Katrina hit to build a gas fire. Just about everybody on the planet today goes out, picks a site, and then they start bringing in steel and they fabricate a gas-to-liquids plant, gasifiers on site. Yep. several years. I needed something that could be transported and set up in days. 2017, I'm in California, set up a company out there. And by this time, I was totally out of synthetic fuels and green energy. It's kind of frustrated by it. And I gave it two business cards. And a couple weeks later, this guy calls me and goes, my name is Christian Juvon. Google me. Well, Christian's the grandfather of plasma physics. And he had built the 25 ton per day plasma gas fire that would literally fold up, sit on the back of a truck, transport to point B. And in two days, you're processing waste. That was the caveat I was 
looking for was something transportable. Second reason is we can build these in factories. So that 50 ton gas fire will go on the back of a truck. You say, hey, we want to process waste in Boise, Idaho. We load the gas fires on trucks. They ship out there. You stand them up and about a week you're processing waste. Yeah. It's a quicker to market process, you know, the Henry Ford type that we're building these in a fabrication shop in Texas. And then we transport them by barge anywhere in the world or by truck anywhere in the United States. Yeah. So that's one of the key factors I was looking for is it just, it had to be deployable. Right. Uh, and I think there's two things, you know, you're going to landfills. I mean, that's got a finite resource, right? At a single landfill, right? Like how long would you expect to be on a landfill? So we design all of our sites to work for 20 years. So we take the tonnage divided by 20 years. It tells us how many tons a year we can process. And then we know that each gas fire does 50 tons. So that tells us how many gas fires we need. Colorado County here in west of Houston will take 20 gas fires, 20 gas fires, 20 years to get rid of that garbage. We're looking at waste coal sites in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. There's 120 million tons of waste coal there. It's leaching acids and stuff into rivers, blah, blah, blah. And it would still take us 20 years, but it'll take like 275 gasifiers to get rid of that 120 million tons of coal. We would turn all of that waste coal into jet fuel, diesel fuel, electricity. Yeah. So now it becomes a commodity. And there's still another value that the world's just now waking up to in coal ash that they don't know about. And it would cut off our need for China to supply us with rare earth elements. So it's like we're killing a pig and taking everything, including the squeal. Yeah, it's pretty mineral rich. I, yeah. And I've had other companies talk about things they could do with coal ash too, right. you know. Um, Besides bury it. Right, that's the last thing you want to do is just throw it away, right? The demand wasn't here years ago, just like SAF. It wasn't sure. really here. Now it's here. You know, they need 3 billion gallons. The problem is there's no source for it. We need rare earth elements, but we've shut down all of the chemical processes it takes to extract REEs from the ground and send it all to China. So what do we do? We still got electric cars. We still want cell phones. And those minerals, those elements are in soil. And either we've got to come up with the extraction processes and do it back here in the U.S. to segregate from China. And then where do we get that from? Well, coal company just announced they've got $40 billion worth of REEs in the ground, several hundred feet deep. Ours is sitting on top of the ground. Yeah. I don't have to go digging anything. I just got to scoop it up yeah. and run it through our process. We've already mined it. Yeah, we've already mined it. We've already drilled for it. So that's, right. that's how we're looking at things is where can we get the lowest hanging fruit with yeah. the least amount of work? Uh-huh but extract the most amount of value. Well, you mentioned you'd need 270, 250 gas yeah. fires in some of these places. No thoughts about scaling up, st- building something like that. Yeah. And I've talked about this on the show before. There's been an example of a gasifier that they tried to scale up in Mississippi to do carbon capture. Didn't work, did and it? It, no, and it broke my heart. They were going to carbon capture lignite, which I hate it that they had to abandon that. But Well, but see, we can still do that. The problem is when you start scaling sciences, sometimes technology scales. Sometimes it just doesn't. I'll you this example is Christian Duvon was called out to, I believe, South Africa to go look at a multi-billion dollar gasification plant. Christian's in his 80s. He's probably in his 70s back then. He wandered all around it and came back and told him, said, it's not going to work because the technology wasn't right. And people think, well, if we go barracks, they have more heat, same process. There's a lot of stuff going on inside of a gasifier. We decided, number one, if we're going to stay shippable, I can't ship a 200 ton per day gasifier somewhere because it's just too big. Mm-hmm. And our belief system is we've got this thing containerized. We've got it dialed in. Just add them. And one guy on a laptop can manage 10, 20 gasifiers because all he's looking at are alarm systems. If alarm goes off, Bob, go out and fix this or touch this or see if there's something stuck in here. If you do that on a 100 ton, 200 ton per day type system and something goes wrong, the whole system fails. And that's what 
has consistently been the problem with this. Whether you're doing garbage or coal or whatever, it's scaling up creates bigger problems. If I go buy a balloon and I poke a little hole in it, it's no big deal until I what? Start to blow it up. When mm-hmm. I start to blow it up, the hole gets bigger. And that's the problem with science is sometimes the hole, the problem gets bigger. People don't see it, think it might be okay until it what? Pops. Yeah. When I first got involved in carbon capture and all that, the next thing they told me about was gasification. Right. And these two things really kind of went hand in hand. And I believe it was an alternative to what they called post-combustion carbon capture, right? It was just easier to gasify it and then do carbon capture than to do post-combustion. It was something with CO2 purity isn't the same. It's harder to capture, all that sort of thing. Correct. Any discussion, I know it's early days, any discussions about any projects that would incorporate some sort of carbon capture solution to them? So we met with a company here in Texas that is building a carbon capture plant to do nothing but pump it in the ground. Starts with oxy something. Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they're building a major plant in South Texas. Like, you know, everybody comes in, what are you going to do with the carbon? What do you want to do with it? Yeah. If I add hydrogen to it, I make a fuel. So now I can burn it in an engine, an airplane, or whatever. If I pump it in the ground, I'm using it to push something out of the ground atypically because you can't push one mass into a ground without moving another mass, uh, hopefully depleting what we've sucked out of the ground. I don't know. But to me, I think there's more value in converting something into a useful form of energy. Now, capturing the CO2 out of a coal plant power plant, you know, it's not easy. Catching it out of your tailpipe, it's not easy. Our goal is, if it's there, can we suck it out of the air, which there are companies looking to do that. But even then, what do you do with it? And I think that's really the question people need to start answering is stop stuffing it in the ground, turn it into something useful and recycle it. I mean, carbon's carbon. You can't destroy carbon. It's always going to be, oh yeah, carbon. And oxygen is going to be oxygen and night, you know. So if we can recycle these things into useful products, I think it's almost like a perpetual motion yeah. in a degree. But you know, we're always going to make plastics. But that's what we have to look into is how can we build a new plastic from old plastics and send gas as a molecule we can use or pyrolysis. I mean, they're not bad technologies. They just have to have economical, viable processes or else if it ain't making money, it's not going to be in business. You That's know? right. And you kind of touched about this. What's next for the company? It's kind of been a busy week. You're in town uh, in Houston today. We got our funding. Yeah. We're off to Iowa to look at a landfill. They've already got 2 million tons in place, plus a bunch of tires. They have air permits. They have carbon credit people on staff, blah, blah, blah. So it really looks good. But we've been trying to get this site set up here in Houston because I like to see this happening all in Texas. Yeah. I'm not a Texan. I grew up in Texas as a kid, but I feel like this is is the right place to do it. So long story short, we've already put a deposit on building the gas fire. That's already starting. We're going to tie up the ceramics in two weeks. And then we're looking at plants where we're going to set up at. And then once the first site's up, we've got companies from Indonesia already talking to us, about 30 gas fires, groups in Mexico, groups all across the U.S. The company we acquired had $900 million worth of business on the books. And, you know, the market's out there, the demand's out there. So our goal is to get a pilot site up and running. Everybody goes, can we see one running? We're going to check that box by next year. And then with that done, we're start developing plants and landfills. Anywhere somebody wants one or a waste coal site, 
site or a tire dump, a hazmat site. You can take all the hazmat, turn it into energy. So our goal is to turn waste into energy. We were talking to a group in India. There's a huge landfill in India. When the monsoon seasons hit, they created a landslide of garbage and killed a bunch of people who live around the landfill. They're promised they don't have anywhere else to build a landfill. So if we could go into a place like that and get rid of that landfill, how many gas rules will it take? I don't know. There's tens of millions of tons of garbage already there. Plus, they're still creating garbage. So eventually, we would have part in different countries building systems to start converting waste and energy. That should be the fuel of the future, you know. Why? Because one generation, two generations, three generations from now, we're still going to be producing garbage. Yeah, yeah. It's not going away. Even if we stop today, we could power the world for the next 100, 200 years, just with what's already out there. Already stacked up. Already stacked up. Yeah. Going to finish with a lightning round. Your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Growing. Crude oil. Disappearing one day. Nuclear. Viable alternative. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. Going away. Wind. Growing. Solar. Growing. Biofuels. Exponentially growing. Hydroelectric. As long as there's water growing. <laughs> Geothermal. Slow grow. Energy storage. Mixed bag. Growing. Energy efficiency. Have to grow. And then finally, fusion power. Harnessing that will be difficult. Yeah. But it will be a future somewhere down the road. All right. Bill Smith, Reformed Energy, thank you so thank much you, for your time. Appreciate it, man. All right. Didn't hurt a bit. That was Bill Smith, Head of Technology Development for Reformed Energy. I want to thank Bill for his time as well as Ian Douglas for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 174. Be sure to join us next week when we learn just how much lithium can be found in one of the country's busiest regions for geothermal energy. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.